Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Um, Welcome to the 2022 Epstein Lecture in the Department of Economic History at the London School of Economics. Uh, My name is Patrick Wallace. I'm one of the professors in the department and the current head of department. So the Epstein Lecture um, was created by the department in 2008 in order to honour the memory of our late colleague Larry Epstein with the support of uh, many friends and colleagues across the discipline. Uh, Larry had passed away very suddenly um, while actually serving as head of department um, and he was an enormous supporter of younger scholars in the field of economic history. I benefited from this personally. Uh, Larry's intervention in many ways changed and shaped the career I've had since then. And so when it came to uh, considering how to um, honor and uh, respond to to his contribution, a lecture in which we sought to focus attention on uh, outstanding emerging scholars in the field was a natural um, decision. Previous Epstein lecturers um, have included many of the current generation of uh, top researchers and academics within economic history. Um, And we are tremendously pleased and proud that our lecturer this year is Professor Philip Arger, currently a professor of economics at the University of Mannheim. Um, You can see Philip there. Um, Since receiving his PhD in 2013 from the University of Pompeu Fabra, Philip has been active on an extraordinary range of um, aspects of the economic history of Europe and the US. Um, You look at his, his work, you can see a wide range of contributions to questions in demography, social mobility, culture, and above all, probably a combined collective, a connective thread to immigration and the experiences of migration. So at a time when Europe is facing a new wave of migration due to war, it's only right that he's coming here to uh, speak to us about the effect of immigration restrictions on the economy. Um, Philip's going to speak for um, just under an hour, and after that we will have time for questions and discussion. Um, This being a Zoom webinar, I will be calling on you to post your questions and then presenting them to Philip, and we'll hopefully have time for a a useful discussion at that point. But for now, let me hand the floor over to Philip. Philip, please, welcome to you as the 2022 Epstein Lecturer. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Patrick, for this really nice introduction. So I think that was really, I'm, I'm really happy to present um, uh, here, like some of uh, the work that I have been um, yeah, working on the last couple of years. So um, I'm going to um, have a couple of slides for you prepared. So like, I'm going to share them with you and, um, uh, and uh, start at, uh, uh, right now. So um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so this is basically a topic that I think recently was uh, hotly debated, not like uh, only within in Europe, but also in the United States and um, people in, in general and politicians um, asked like, you know, what the effect of uh, immigration has on the economy and like, you know, how immigration restrictions would have an impact say on local, uh, on, the, on, on like the local labor markets uh, and other um, aspects that affects our life. So um, like what I'm going to do is like, I'm going to bring you back um, to an episode um, to the United States in the 1920s um, when uh, the US changed from a country that was uh, like had a relative open immigration policy 
to one that become relatively or like quite uh, restrictive. So like I'm going to talk about uh, the 1920s border closures in the United States. And um, my talk will focus on um, two aspects, okay? And so like the first um, maybe like 25 to 30 minutes, I'm going to explain you um, like what's the impact of these immigration restrictions that were implemented in the 1920s on local labor markets. And afterwards, I'm going to um, talk about um, the effects that these uh, restrictions had on public health in, uh, in cities. And so um, let me start um, my talk with a classical photograph um, of uh, like, so here you see immigrants that are waiting to be processed for entry to the United States at Ellis Island. Um, and so this, uh, this uh, photograph um, took place during the age of mass migration, okay? So this was uh, an episode where uh, millions of Europeans moved from, uh, moved to the United States, um, like say roughly in the, in the time between 1850 and before the start of World War I. And these immigrants from Europe faced actually relatively few barriers uh, to entry. So like, you know, they didn't need a family sponsor or they also didn't uh, need to prove that there was a job uh, waiting for them. This situation changed dramatically during the 1920s when the federal government introduced like a set of restrictive quota acts. I will explain you these quota acts uh, in detail as we go along. And so the US become a, a, um, like a, a closed economy in, uh, in, in terms of European immigration. And like this uh, first talk will evaluate or like this first part of the talk will evaluate how these immigration uh, restrictions in the 1920s affect uh, local labor markets. So this is joint work together with um, um, Rena Bramitsky, who is uh, at Stanford, uh, Leah Bustan from Princeton University, um, her former PhD student, Elior Cohen, uh, who works now at the Fed in Kansas. And um, last but not least, like um, a longstanding co-author of mine who also get, uh, should get like a lot of credit on the two parts that I'm talking about today, Caspar uh, von Hansen, who is uh, located at the University of uh, of Copenhagen. And so um, to start with, um, there was, a, uh, with this talk, there was a general um, debate about um, uh, whether immig immigrants that were coming from Europe, like think about like that at the height of this, uh, at the height of the area of mass migration, around 1 million people per year were arriving at the shores of the United States. And so there was like, a, the question was like, you know, how beneficial is immigration for the US economy and there were like two generally competing views. So like, you know, despite that um, people thought that immigration was crucial for, for urbanization and industrialization, some of the um, proponents of introducing immigration restrictions argued, okay, like still immigration was quite costly. Why? Because um, the immigrants that were coming um, at the time around the at the beginning of uh, the 1900s, they were coming from groups like say from Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Southern Europe that were considered to be culturally and racially very distant from the native born. And so like there, there was this fear that immigrants were not able to assimilate into the US economy. Okay, and um, so like uh, the other argument was like more of an economic argument. So like you could think about the immigrant workers, they are just replacing the native ones. 
in general, the cultural arguments were maybe more central at that point in time. And like the second part of this talk will focus more on this uh, on these aspects. But here you have a quote of um, um, a professor, um, Jeremiah Chanks, who was a member of the, um, of the Dillingham Commission um, in the United States. And so he argued a large proportion of native Americans and all the immigrant employees from Great Britain and Northern Europe have left certain industries such as coal mining and iron and steel manufacturing. And it's undoubtedly true that the availability of the large supply of recent immigrant labor has prevented an increase in wages, which otherwise would have resulted during recent years from the increased demand for labor. Okay, so, so that was like one like um, argument of these proponents of immigration restrictions, why they think immigration in imposing immigration restrictions would basically um, lead to an increase in the wages of the labor stock that was already uh, in, in the United States, okay? That was mostly addressed to US born um, that were um, like uh, whites, okay? So then the alternative view was that immigrants actually are not substitutes with uh, the native uh, born labor force, but they are actually complements, okay? So like they're complementing each other. And an argument that was put forward here was from Edward Steiner. He was uh, working at Brunel College. And he said, until now, there have been room for all and they have not presented a serious economic menace. Each previous immigrant group um, driven from the lower and coarser task has risen. All have been crowded up and not many have been crowded out. So no considerable groups of Native Americans are bewailing the fact that they cannot find work in the mines, they do not care to go back to the tracks, the pickaxe and the shovel, okay? And um, so what we are going to, to do now is that we are um, focusing on this huge change in immigration policy um, that the closing of the border of two European immigrant, immigrants had in the 1920s. So in general, like what um, current re research has found is that um, there is a sort of a puzzle because um, labor markets in the US that were mo most exposed to immigration declines, they actually experience falling earnings for US born after the quotas has imposed. So contrary to this argument, what, for example, Jeremiah Cheng thought would have happened. And so now our goal here in this talk is to explain why the average US born worker did not benefit from the immigration restrictions. And so like in short, to give you a brief answer to that, um, there have been some adjustments, okay? Depending on which sector we are looking at, you will see that um, um, basically um, labor and capital adjusted to the shock. And I will show you that now in the next couple of minutes, how this, um, how this happens. So just to put this research question into context, I would like to emphasize like that during the age of mass migration, there was like the, the form born stock was at around 14%. So like this, you can imagine already that like, you know, to keep this, um, to keep this, uh, let me just see if I can um, spotlight that. Yeah, so, so I'm talking about this area here. So like you can already imagine to keep this foreign born stock that high, a lot of immigrants had to come in every year so that the foreign born stock is not uh, uh, falling. And so like um, this kind of 
regime, which we refer to like as the regime of open borders, changed with the introduction of the quotas. And I will explain you how these quotas have uh, worked uh, in uh, in a second. So like um, these quotas resulted in a reduction of the annual immigration inflow that was during the period of mass migration, think about it as around 850,000 people coming um, per year, and that was reduced down to 150,000, okay? And as a result, the foreign-born stock was gradually falling over time, reaching a minimum like in the, in the 1970s with around 5%, while afterwards when like the US uh, gradually opened um, like so that through to the introduction of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, like um, the immigration uh, stock starts to, uh, started to increase again, reaching in the 2010s similar levels. So here um, compared to the, uh, uh, the episode that we had during the age of mass migration, okay? So now there was not only uh, absolute reduction in the number of immigrants that were coming to the United States, but there were also some countries more affected than others, okay? And so um, now the question is like, um, how do these quotas work? And I think this um, uh, cartoon here illustrates the policy actually um, quite well. So um, what do you see here? You see a lot of people that try to get out of Europe and try to get to the US. And so there's like this funnel and Uncle Sam is holding a cart and uh, says basically that's uh, the only way to handle it. And like, you know, two, 3%. So now you might ask 3% of what? So um, this policy basically was set to be 3% of the foreign born stock in 1910, okay? And um, that was basically implemented in the Emergency Quota Act of 1921. This law became permanent in 1924 and um, the immigration, uh, uh, so the quotas, they become even more stricter. Let me explain you that in detail. So I said to you already before that the, um, the quotas were set to 3% of each foreign born group living in the United States in 1910. So there were like na national specific quotas, like so for Italy, for Germany, for England, for Ireland, um, and for the Scandinavians and so forth. Um, so each of these countries had a national specific quota um, that was 3% of their total stock in 1910. And that led already to a large decrease in immigration from around 810,000 in 1921 to 360,000 in 1922, okay? One important um, feature of the Quota Act was that not all immigrants were subject to this quota law. In particular, people from Canada, Mexico, Latin America, they were exempted from this quota and faced no restrictions. So in 24, the ceiling was reduced and the quota went down to 160,000 in 1925 and 150,000 in, uh, in, in 1929. These restrictions because now the quota like not, was not only reduced to 2%, but they also shifted the stock back in time to 1890, where most of the immigrants were actually coming from Western and Northern Europe and not from Southern and Eastern Europe, which basically this quota intended to shut out of moving to the, uh, moving to the US. So these restrictions bind more against this so-called new immigrants groups, think of uh, Italian immigrants, Russian immigrants, Polish immigrants, and so forth. Um, so this quota heavily affected 
um, these countries. You can see this also here in this in, in this graph. And so let's just focus on, um, I'm going to spotlight that again here on this bar here in 1890. So what you see here in this brownish area, this is the share of the immigrant stock that was basically coming from Northwestern Europe. And so you can see that in 1890, this were around 85%, while in 1910, this were only 55%. And the people from Southern and Eastern Europe, um, they're only, that only constitu constituted a much smaller fraction of the total immigrant stock in 1890. So you can see that, I give you an example, in, in Germany, the nine, for, for Germans in 1924, the quota was set to around 50,000 annually, the number of German immigrants that came annually to the US before World War I between 1910 and 1914 was around 160,000 a year. While for Italians, the quota was set to be less than 4,000 annually. And so the number of Italian immigrants between 1910 to 1914 was about 1.1 million a year. So you see that like, base, uh, uh, no, sorry, it was 1.1 million over this time period between 1910 and 1940. So like, as you can see, these numbers um, or like the quotas were much more restrictive for Italy than for uh, Germany. And we are going to exploit that in our empirical analysis that I will uh, show you in a couple of slides, okay? So, um, here you see again, the annual immigration flows to the US um, basically by quota restriction categories. So you see the total immigration, this is basically this dark solid line. And so you see that like, uh, as I mentioned before, up to 1915, this was on average around, yeah, say 850,000 coming per, uh, per year. And um, already from 1900 on, you see that most of these people, most of these people were coming from these so-called high restriction countries like Italy, for example. And the low restriction countries like Germans or like people from, uh, from Great Britain, they are in this uh, a little bit darker shaded uh, area. And then there were people with no restrictions. Remember these were people, for example, from Canada and from Mexico. So now the quota kicked in same, mostly after 1924. And so you see here like a relatively uh, strong decline. And so like now the total number of immigrants that were coming from Europe was limited to around 150,000 uh, a year. And so you can see that like basically the overall number of people coming from high restriction countries is really, really uh, low, okay? So one more, um, one more figure um, here. So you can see this again, that like the inflow of high restriction countries was really, really high during the period 1902 to 1910. While then afterwards, what you see here, like just focus on the, on the first column here, Afterwards, you see the actual inflow between 1922 and 1930. So this is this like more like this light, light more lightly gray shaded area, and then like the very light area here are the quota slopes. And so you you can you can see that actually the quotas were binding for these countries. So most of the immigrants that were coming uh, from high restriction countries, um, so they consumed up the. Uh, the quota uh, slots that were allocated to them, while for low restriction countries, you see that uh, like they even didn't exhaust fully the quota. And um, on the, the last column, you see the numbers for uh, countries that had no restrictions. Obviously, there were no quota slots, but the number of immigrants from Canada and from Mexico quadrupled from uh, the 1900s to the 1920s. Okay. 
So like, remember like the first uh, photograph that I showed you here, you have this photograph again in the during the 1920s. And you can see that basically there were like almost no people uh, at I Ellis Island around 1924. So like just illustrating um, the impact of this quota in, um, in a nice photograph. So now like let's talk about our identification and our empirical strategy. So like this analysis is going to use two sources of variation. One will be um, variation over time. So this is basically we're going to compare what happened before and what happened after the immigration quotas were implemented. Okay. And um, the second one is cross-sectional variation across the United States. So we are going to look at local labor markets. I will tell you in a second what local labor markets in our setup are. And these local labor markets are differentially affected by the national quota acts, okay? And so basically, what do we mean by more exposure? More exposure means that there is a higher share of Southern and Eastern European um, <coughs> living there controlling for the, the share of Form 1 in 1900. This will become clear in a second. So I will describe this in more detail uh, shortly. But let me just tell you what we find, like our, or our main findings is that like, Using this approach, we will find that basically US-born workers in more exposed areas did not benefit from the immigrant losses, okay? What we see is that in urban labor markets, these, we, what we observe there, that there is a nearly one-to-one -one replacement of immigrant workers with internal migrants, so like uh, people that were moving within the US to like these affected places, and immigrants from unrestricted countries such as Canada or Mexico. In rural areas, a different picture emerges, okay? So what we see here is that um, we don't see that there is this inflow of internal migrants. Actually, like, the, uh, like the, in these more affected areas, we see like there's a lower inflow of, um, of restricted migrants, but like this is not offset by internal migration and also not by immigration from unrestricted countries. Instead, what we observe is that in this farming, in the, in, the, in, the, in the labor markets that were more rural, we see that there is a shift to more capital intensive crops production, okay? So like uh, while in urban areas, we don't see that the net labor supply is, uh, is changing dramatically. So now how do we, how do we get to these results? I like to give you a brief thought experiment, okay? So that we that you see how 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 we thinking about that. So just consider two SEAs. What are SEAs? SEAs are uh, state economic areas, and this is something similar to like an historical equivalent to commuting zones. So like that are used today to define local labor markets. So that's basically a grouping of. Uh, economically integrated uh, counties, so usually like around four to five, okay? And so now we have two state economic areas, um, A and B, and both have the same form one share, say in 1900. So basically both have a form one share of 10%, but in the first state economic area, all the people that are uh, coming from abroad are from Italy. And remember Italy was the most restricted country while in uh, state economic area B, all the immigrants were coming from, from Germany and that is a less restricted country. So now after the quota system is introduced, we would expect that the state economic area A 
is basically more affected by the quota act than state economic area uh, uh, B. So like we would expect that the immigration in, in, uh, inflow into this highly affected state economic area is much lower relative to less to the less affected state economic area uh, B, okay? So our analysis will be a, a relative comparison. Uh, so that's very important to keep in mind. And so what information do we need? So we need two pieces of information for each of the state economic areas. We need the initial population share from each country of origin. So like, you know, from the, of course, the people, the, the US born, and then like from the different foreign borns, which where we have information by birthplace. And this is based on the full count census records um, that are uh, that are now have, they have been digitized since uh, a few years. And then like we need to calculate the intensity of this restriction for each country of origin so that we can basically get a measure to know which of these labor markets are more affected by this labor like by this immigration policy uh, change okay so how do we do that so how do we do that is we calculate a measure that's called quota exposure okay and so in in the in the in the simplest way like that the, the example that i just explained to you and we had like say in one in one state the economic area we had 10% of italians and the, and these italians are completely um they are like affected by the by the quota so like their their inflow is 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 restricted like you know they would be completely affected while the germans ones would not be affected so now we do this for all um countries that we have in the census uh, data and some of them are more restricted than others so like you know you will get a different intensity across the different state economic areas so like uh, in, in in one case like uh, out of the 10 percent 20 percent are exposed in the other one 50 percent in the other one 80 percent okay and so like we have uh, 460 state economic areas and uh, like now what you see here in, uh, is like we are going to sum up over all, uh, so basically over all this over all the um, foreign-born uh, population shares. So like this is national specific. So like say if we have five different nationalities and they constitute like two uh, percent each, that would sum up to ten percent. But now like in our measure only counts the ones that are affected by the quota in some sense. Okay, and so what how we do that is that we have this term called QI, and that's like the intensity defined as the difference between the unrestricted flows. So like this would be how would the Russian immigration look like if the policy would be absent. So we would need to make a prediction for that and the difference to that to the quota slots. Okay, so like if the quota slots are higher than the predicted inflow, like this would be not an affected country. But like, of course, if the quota is lower than the predicted inflow, then like, you know, there would be a bite of the quota in, in that sense. And this measure is basically normalized by the unrestricted immigration flow. So this measure varies between zero and one. How does this look like? I give you some, I give you some uh, uh, examples, okay? So here we have Russia as an example. So we have this uh, actual immigration series. This is the data that are based on annual immigration inflows from Wilcox. So this, uh, this is uh, um, uh, like that has been published in the late 1920s. 
And so like what you see here is the following. So you see um, the actual immigration before World War One, and then you see also the, uh, so like this is like on the, on the left-hand side of this graph. And then on the right-hand side of this graph, you see the actual immigration for the year 1915 to 1930. And the red um, solid line is the quota limit. And so you can see here for Russia, the quota would be fully binding. And the gap between the dotted line, which is our prediction that we are making based on the immigration that has happened before World War One, and we do a lot of different modifications there. And like you know, even if you use different ways of predicting these immigration streams into the time period where the quotas were in place, like our results remain unchanged. Okay, so um, now if you take the gap between the dotted line and um, and the quotas here, you would uh, this would be basically the missing immigrants that would have arrived from um, this from this country. And so like um, in this case, like in the Russian case, the, the quota would be um, um, almost equal to, to one because like there are only just very few immigrants allowed to enter um, um, after the quota is in place. And so like here you see this for different uh, countries, like for Italy, um, relatively similar picture emerges. So this is like what you see on the top, uh, uh, right panel, and then you have, uh, then we also, I, I provided you the examples for Sweden and Ireland, where basically our prediction would be such that there are fewer immigrants coming than actually the, uh, that like the, the quota that was set by the government. So for uh, Swedish immigrants and for Irish immigrants, the quota in our context would not be really fine. Okay. So now if we sum this up over all the European countries where these quotas were in place, we would get the total number of missing immigrants for like say each quota year. So just that you, you have uh, that in, uh, as, a, as a concept in mind. And like, you know, after um, 1924, we have around 860,000 immigrants that are missing per year. Um, and so this translates into around almost one missing immigrant per 100 inhabitants. This is just like to, to get some idea about like how this, how we calculate this exposure measure, okay? So when we when we basically do this according to this formula that I just uh, um, that I just explained to you, we kind of can plot this quota exposure uh, measure for each state economic area, and so we get like something like a heat map, okay? And so what you see here, this is basically our quota exposure measure at the state economic area, okay? And um, so um, what is important to see there is, so this measure is basically net of um, like taking into account that basically in the US there were like different regions like the South, the Midwest, the West and, uh, and, the, North, uh, and the Northeast. And so basically what this measure does is like, it takes into, a, into account that basically the Southern economy was probably very different from the, re the rest of the country. And so, uh, and we also control for the share of foreign born. So meaning like, you know, now we hold, like this was this example, what I gave you, like we say, like we are going to compare these two places that had 10% of uh, foreign born, but like what matters for us in this analysis is only the composition, okay? So like in places that had like more Italians say, they would be redder on that map. And so here, what you see on this map is that there is actually quite some uh, variation, um, um, like uh, across the different uh, local labor markets. And so, like the darker redded area, there are the ones that are more 
that are more, ex, you know, that are more exposed and the lighter areas are the ones that are uh, less exposed. So now we have uh, a measure that gives us the cross-sectional variation. So like, let me just go one time back. So you, you see here, remember, like I, I talked about, we have two sources, like the cross-sectional variation and now over time. Now we include the variation over time. And that is what you see here in our estimation framework. Okay. And so the, what, what, what we do here is now we regress our outcome of interest. So this could be, for example, the form one share of prime age men um, that were between say 16 and 65 years old. And this is regressed on state economic area fixed effects. So like we taking out that certain um, local labor markets had just like in general different characteristics. So this uh, is like that a time invariant. So this is, this is taken out. We also take out time variation that basically varies across these different census regions. So like we are only comparing here, basically state economic areas that are within a state, within a census region. So we only compare this variation within the American South, for example. Then we control for the foreign-born share. This is what you see here. Like that's the foreign-born share. And this variable is interacted with a, with, with a time dummy. And this is where the time variation is also coming, is especially important. So this is one for the period after the quota and zero for the period before. And the same we do for the quota exposure measure, okay? And so um, uh, the, our analysis is actually focusing on the period between 1900 and 1930, okay? And um, so the first regressions I'm going to show you is the form one share and occupation-based earnings of US-born male workers. Why are we not using wages? The problem is that during this time period, there is no information on individual wages at, uh, from, from the census. So like what people, what general researchers are using is a so-called, um, like that's an, a, an, a proxy for, for, for wage or for income that only varies across occupations, okay? And um, so what does the beta coefficient, like our coefficient of interest capture? This basically um, tells us the effect of the quota exposure. So like, you know, we are comparing labor markets with different shares of residents from restricted countries uh, before and after the policy change. And so like the, the results that I'm going to show you is uh, like first the form one share and the occupation-based earnings. Then basically we are going to look at why we don't see any impact on this occupation-based earnings. And we kind of look at um, the, pop the population change rate, that, so the changes in the in the working age population, um, um, and uh, how do we do that? So we look at one period, that's the period before um, the policy has been implemented. So like you know between 1900 and 1910, and then the, and then after the period is implemented, 1920 to 1930. I explain you that in details when we get to the results. And then we look at the different at different sectors. So we will look at the manufacturing sector, we will look at the mining sector, and we would look at the agricultural sector and see how um, these sectors adjust to this uh, shock. Okay. So this is our first result. And so what you can see here, this is basically a scatter plot, and I'm only going to show you that for our urban um, 
local labor markets. So we have similar pictures also for the uh, rural labor markets and for the so-called mining labor markets. So like what's the urban labor markets? These are basically state economic areas that have an urban share that's above 20 uh, percent. So more than 20 percent in this in this area in 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 in, in this uh, local labor markets live actually in a city. Okay, uh, while the like the mining uh, state economic areas are the one that had at least one percent of the workforce employed in the mining industry, and the rest is basically what we consider as uh, rural labor markets. So what can we what can we see here? So on the x-axis, you see this measure of quota exposure, okay? And on the y-axis, on the, the, on the left-hand side, you see the change in the European uh, immigrants. So these are our recent arrivals. And um, so basically what we, uh, what we do here, um, so we basically, this is the regression of like using this equation that I have just uh, shown you. And um, so basically, based on the on controlling for the form bond share in 1900, interactive with this time dummy, our fixed effects and so on. What we see here is that there is this negative relationship between like places that are more affected by the quota, they experience uh, a lower inflow of immigrants. So like a one percentage point difference in quota exposure, it's roughly associated with Around uh, one point, yeah, around 1.5 percentage point decline in the foreign-born share after the border closure, meaning that there is actually really an effect coming from uh, these immigration restrictions by, like, re in in some areas, re really reducing uh, the foreign-born share. But now, if you look at the right-hand side, what you see here is that basically the income uh, score, so like our measure for um, uh, for for wages, which are which we aggregate, so we have this for every individual that basically lived in this area, say between 1900 and 1910. So what, what do we refer here as stayers are people that have not moved out of these places, but they stayed put. And so, like basically, we have this information for 1900 and 1910. So we we can calculate the um, the change in this uh, in this income measure for the period before relative to the period after in 1920 to 1930. And what you see here is that there is not much going on. So there is no in occupational income upgrading. And this same pattern actually emerges for rural and for mining state economic areas, okay? So, um, so now the question is, why is that the case, okay? And so um, um, what, what we're going to show you or like what I'm going to show you on the next uh, few slides is that um, in urban areas, um, they attracted new workers, and these are mainly um, internal mi migrants, while in rural areas, um, we, we see that there is quite some out-migration, and in a few slides, you will see that basically farmers are substituted away from um, intensive labor-intensive crops to more capital-intensive uh, crops. And in mining areas, what we observe there, although this is more of a suggestive evidence, because there we don't have so deep detailed data on the mining sector, we just see that this sector simply contracted. The mining sector at that point in time relied heavily on immigration labor. Okay, so let's uh, see how our results look like. And so let's focus first on the, on the first row, okay? Um, and so what you see here is, so now we look on the left-hand side, our variable of interest is now 
the effect on working age population change rates, okay? And um, what you see in column one is like our European immigrants. These are the recent arrivals. And we see that in places that are more affected by the quota, there is a substantial decline in European immigrants. This is true for our urban sample, the mining sample, and also the rural sample. But what is different is how the existing work stock, uh, stock is responding to that. So we see that basically, um, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the urban sample that the, the reduction in the inflow of European immigrants is more than offset by the so-called unrestricted population. What is the unrestricted population? This is what you see in columns three, four, five, and six. So this is the native-born whites, the native-born non-whites, European immigrants that have been living in the US for a long enough time in immigrants from the Western hemisphere. And here basically you see that basically into the urban sample, you see this inflow of native born white um, um, uh, uh, workers. So like almost three new entrants per 100 in the population, most of them were white internal immigrants in urban areas. While in rural areas, we see that there is uh, an outflow, so a 1% increase in the quota exposure measure is associated with fewer entries of immigrants, like around 0.7 to 1.5 immigrant men, men per 100 initial residents, or literally speaking, of around 650 fewer immigrants for a typical city of 50,000 residents. However, we see in the rural area more of a sign of a net outflow so almost one resident per 100 of the unrestricted population is also moving out, although this coefficient is not statistically significant. Now let's look at our different industries. And basically there we see in the urban sample, most of the action is coming from the manufacturing sector, while in the mining sample, most of the action is coming from people that worked in mining and in agriculture, most of the action is coming from people that worked in agriculture, okay? And so the majority of immigrant losses in the urban sample was from manufacturing. This is what you see here in the first in the first row. Um, and ba uh, so basically, first row, first column, you see that basically there is this huge, uh, like in this more affected uh, areas. And if you were working in, ma in manufacturing, we see that Im immigrant inflow is going to be reduced while this is basically offset by an inflow of the unrestricted population. This is what you see in the second uh, in the row, which I highlighted in this yellow rectangle. For the mining sector, you see an opposite uh, picture. So like people like immigrants are, so there are fewer immigrants that go into these places, but there are also fewer um, workers uh, that coming from the unrestricted population into the mining sector. So like, um, while, so, so in, in, in agriculture, you see a quite similar picture to the, to the one in, uh, in, uh, in, in mining. So like, um, but these losses in mining and in the agricultural, uh, in, the agri in, the, in the mining and in the agricultural sample, they were not replaced by basically internal migrants while in the urban sample, they were basically replaced. So like we see this uh, labor replacements only in the urban sample. Let's finally now look at the different sectors. So as we probably already expect, because um, these losses of immigrants in these more affected areas was basically compensated in, um, uh, 
in in the in the, in, the, in 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 manufacturing by inflow of native-born workers. We don't see that there is like much evidence of higher output or capital deepening, deepening in the manufacturing sector after the border closure, which I think is consistent with the lack of a net change in labor supply. And there are some small wage effects uh, 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 there. However, if we look at the agriculture and the mining sector, which uh, I will do in the last uh, two slides of, um, of what I want to show you for, for, this, for this part. So what, you, what we see here is we're going to look at, um, and so now please focus on column two and column three. Um, so what you see here is that in areas that were more affected by, the, by this policy shock, we see that there is an increase in the share of capital intensive crops. There is uh, like um, an, a decline in the share of labor intensive uh, uh, crops. So um, what we also see is a decline in um, wage expenditures per worker, but we don't see any change in the profitability, which is our measure of what we have in column one, and that's the locked farmland value, okay? So um, overall, we regard that as an evidence that um, here farmers started to switch to more to a more capital intensive um, production, okay? Um, unfortunately, we don't have a measure of tractorization because this is only available for the time period after the, um, the, the immigration restrictions were in place. However, um, what happened during this time period is that the mule and the, and the horse, which were uh, the draft capital in the agriculture sector, they were started to be replaced by the, by, uh, by the tractor. So we only have some suggestive evidence. Uh, for that. And then the last evidence is on the mining sector. And so here, um, note that we don't have information at state economic areas, but only at the state level. Okay. So, um, and here, what, what we have, we have some measure of output per worker, capital expenditures per worker, and also the uh, average wages per worker and the number of mines. And generally, in the more affected areas, we see a pattern of Con, con, uh, that this industry contracted after this quota uh, were in, uh, in place. Why? Because the, main, the mining industry actually couldn't substitute into more capital intensive form of productions because uh, the mechanization arrived most during the 1940s, so like after our sample period. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, let me um, conclude on, um, on, on that part, and then I will talk very briefly about the second um, work that I'm uh, that we are, that I'm currently working on with my uh, with my co-authors. So, like, um, basically, what do we see from this immigration policy? Is in a nutshell that native workers haven't really benefited from from it, at least not in the in the long run. Why? Because um, of labor mobility and capital adjustment. Okay, so basically, these immigration restrictions led 
to some substitutions to other sources, either of labor or of substitutable capital. Today, you can think about that that could be um, automatization and, uh, and offshore. So now let me um, go to the second uh, part that I would like to talk to you about. And that is joint work together with uh, James Feigenbaum from Boston, uh, Hurian Tan, who is now at, uh, works at Singapore, and also Casper. And um, this project is about how um, the immigration restrictions affected uh, mortality in American cities. So um, very briefly, um, during this time period, one of the biggest fears of nativists was that um, immigrants basically um, are a threat to domestic health, bringing contagious diseases, uh, and uh, this type of concern has like really a long history, and these fears have been actually always reinforced during times when a lot of immigrants were coming to a country that's not particular to, uh, to the yes, that also happened in, uh, in, in other countries. Uh, as well, so I have here this uh, uh, like a relative nice quote from Erica Lee, who is a historian at the University of Minnesota, and she says, "We know that whatever immigrant menace was the focus of xenophobes in the past, whether it be the Irish Catholics in the 19th century, and later the Chinese and other Asians, of course Italians and Jews, and other Southern and Eastern Europeans and Mexicans, the claim has always been that these groups were not racially inferior." but they brought particularly dangerous and contagious diseases that would end up harming the US native population. Here you see a few cartoons that basically illustrate this threat quite, uh, yeah, like this imagine what these people had quite nicely. Um, so here you see like a cartoon of uh, the so-called book that said the kind of assisted immigrant we cannot afford to admit. So like, uh, like basically, um, there was like with the immigrants, there was coming cholera. And here you have also another uh, um, uh, cartoon that says like, yeah, the stranger at our gate. And like, um, so, so basically this type of, uh, of fears that I've just uh, mentioned, um, you see, you see uh, there are a lot of this sort of cartoons um, during, this, uh, during this time period. But this type of views, uh, it's not something that's only happening in the past, but also still today, many uh, Americans, for example, hold mistaken, also sharply negative views about immigrants, okay? And so like, you know, this argument of immigrants bringing infectious diseases across the borders is not something that was only the case uh, that nativists are brought up during um, uh, um, historical times, but you have that also today think about uh, the debate about the coronavirus, okay? So what we are going to argue is that um, it's not that immigrants were actually unhealthy, but it's actually their living in the environment where they had to live in that basically, you know, was the main reason why we see this uh, um, yeah, correlation between actually Im immigration and mortality in American cities. So here you see uh, a picture of sleeping quarters um, in uh, New York uh, around uh, 1905. And you see that this uh, substandard housing was uh, really, a, a, really a huge um, con concern that it spreads a lot of infectious diseases. So um, like con contemporary doctors and public health scholars, they viewed these buildings where immigrants lived at that point in time 
as incubators of diseases. So like, what do we do? We're going to study this inter uh, like the, the intersection of immigration and public uh, health. Why do we do that at the 20th century? At that point in time, infectious diseases were major killers in cities, okay? And um, this uh, urban mortality penalties, so like the, the, the mortality rates in um, the urban areas, they were substantially higher than in the rural areas. But this penalty basically declined during uh, the 19 uh, during the early 1900s, uh, and this was also a period of mass migration, as I already explained at the beginning of our talk. So, like, despite that there were a lot of benefits of immigration in this period, there was extreme xenophobia in nativism. Okay, and we are going to exploit this immigration policy, as I explained to you before, to look at that uh, question in in more detail. Let me briefly tell you what we find. So what we find is that basically immigration restrictions reduce urban mortality. So cities with more missing immigrants, they experienced a sharp decline in deaths from infectious diseases. And we can show this very convincingly. But the reason why that's the case is not because these immigrants were unhealthy themselves, but because they lived in these very, very bad uh, neighborhoods with substandard housing. And so we show that mortality declines were actually largest in cities where immigrants resided in the most crowded and squalid conditions and where public health resources were stretched to sinners. Since um, how do we do that? We actually use a very similar approach to the one that I have explained to you before. In a nutshell, the difference is that now we are looking at cities instead of state economic uh, areas for this, uh, for this approach. And while in the first place, we only have data for every decade, here we have annual mortality data. So we can basically um, show uh, like how this effect evolves over time. I will show you that in a, uh, I will show you that in a, in a second. So I will quickly uh, go over what we are doing. So we have collected mortality data, like we have annual mortality data by cause of death from around 350 cities. We have mortality data by race for 128 cities. And we have mortality data by nativity from 1900 to 1922, okay? And so our estimation strategy does the following. So we have cause-specific mortality. Um, so like we group them in infectious diseases, non-infectious diseases and external diseases. And we have that on the left-hand side. So this is the annual city level mortality rate. You see this here, this uh, is our outcome variable, regressed on city fixed effects, time fixed effects, our quota exposure measure, which we have constructed similar to like what, what we have done in the, in, in the other paper. There are some small differences, but they are not now for understanding what we're doing. That's not uh, uh, so important right now. And we basically control for the age structure of a city for, um, the population size of a city, and we also include leg mortality rates between 1980 to 1921 to take into account um, the impact of the, of the Spanish flu. And in some uh, specification, we include also a stricter set of controls to kind of see that whether our results are robust or not. What's the advantage of this approach? We can actually use event study design. Remember now here we have annual data and we can exploit whether more or like less affected cities, how they evolve 
before the quota was implemented, we would like to see that there are no differences before the quota, but only afterwards, once these restrictions were in place. Okay, so this is like a neat tool to look at the quota effect. Let me show you our main results, and then let me explain you what is driving this result. And then, like, basically, I think we are at the end of... Uh, okay, of, you just of, you asked me to tell you when you were at 5.2, just to let you know where you are. Yeah, okay. Yeah, tell you now, I'm, okay? I'm, 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 yeah, I, I, I know. Thank you. Uh, no. Okay, good. So, basically, what do you see here now? So, like, you see four figures, and these are event study estimates. And so, like, what I would like to focus you on is remember... Um, that we said, why? what's the reason for this mortality decline is that basically people are living in this, uh, like, you know, it is related to the density um, and the bad housing conditions where these people are living. So what do we do here? So the first figure shows you the, um, the mortality rate for uh, all causes. So it's everything grouped together. And you see that there is this decline in the mortality rate right after this like red like it starts after this first red vertical line and so then you see this uh you 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 see this uh, gradual decline in the mortality rate so this is around like um a, yeah like a one percentage point increase in our quota measure can reduce the overall mortality rate by around two percent if you look at this right side picture here um on infectious diseases where most of this effect is coming from, this is around 5%. And so you see that here, there's a much more dramatic decline. We also find something for external causes, but we don't find something for non-infectious causes, okay? And so this is already like immigrants had basically excess mortality for all the causes. But like, you know, if we think that there would be just some general pattern going on, we should maybe also see an impact on the non-infectious causes, but we only observe that for the infectious causes. Now. The question is, what are what can drive these results? And I, there are two main candidates. One is changes in the population composition. So it could just be because immigrants had like a higher excess mortality. Now we reduce immigration. That basically this is like driving these results. Already that like we don't find something on non-infectious causes. You could think about that this maybe is not the whole story. Okay, and the second candidate is overcrowding. Okay, and so this is basically um, so what we show in in and like so I kind of summarize what we what we find there. So we actually um, show that just changes in population composition cannot drive these uh, results. Why? Because if we decompose the mortality rate, so like you know you have the mortality rate, you can decompose that in the mortality rate of um, the, uh, uh, of the people that are not foreign born. And then basically you can write on the right hand side, you see the excess mortality, which is the gap between the foreign born and the native borns and the share of the foreign born rate. And so now here, what this equation tells you nicely is if the foreign born share would go down and we have excess mortality, this mortality rate would just be reduced no matter what. What we show you is that this is actually not true because we also find an impact on the native borns. And I just show you very quickly here on this table, what we see here is that in more affected cities, we see also a decline of the US born. So now, of course, the US born could be also second generation immigrants. 
but we have some data here that shows you that basically the mortality decline is not only coming from uh, uh, US born white that have a form one parent, but also that have native ones. So indicating there were actually spillover effects going on. So now what can basically um, be the reason for this result, what we find? And this is really um, the living conditions um, that these people have been uh, living on. So what we show in this paper is that um, the quota effects were substantially larger in more crowded cities, okay? The quotas itself reduce crowding and congestion. So we have some proxies for, um, uh, for that can kind of indicate that. So we look at the borders and lodges, which was a common way of uh, living in these very congested uh, areas at that point in time. And we see that the quotas actually reduce this measure. And we don't find any impact of the quota on rural mortality. So this is basically where the paper got his title from. Remember, it's called How the Other Half Dies. This is from this book from Jakob uh, Ries, which is called How the Other Half Lives. And so you see here this like very bad living conditions of uh, people living in these tenement rooms. And so what we show you here, and then I'm, I'm going to uh, end uh, my talk, is that basically we see that the quota reduce not only the infectious causes, this is what you see here in this, in this, uh, in this basically what is highlighted here. So, um, but what you see here in places that were more densely populated, the quota has a stronger impact, but that's only the case for infectious causes, not for external causes, which you see in column five uh, and, uh, and six, okay? Here you see that the quota reduces also um, the number of borders and lodges per 1,000 people in the US. And uh, what we do then is a back of the envelope calculation. And because we want to see how much of our total effect is explained by this density effect, okay? And what we find is, um, so I showed you now the impact of the quota on mortality. This was like the first results that I showed you in the event graph. I showed you the um, impact of quota on crowding. This is just what you saw here on the borders and on the lodges. And then we only have some correlations that can say something about crowding and mortality. So we have no causal estimates of the second numerator term. This We have to use some correlations from the period before the shock occurred. But like if we do that, we find that the crowding explains about between 27 to 68 of our total mortality effects and 12 to 37% of our infectious diseases. Why, is, like, why are we looking at rural counties? This is my, my last uh, slides before I'm going to conclude. Um, because in rural counties, there were also a lot of immigrants, but rural counties are not dense. So like, you know, if our argument would be uh, like, you know, not really valid, we should also see a decline in rural counties. But in rural counties, we don't find any impact on rural mortality of the quota restrictions. Basically, like giving some further evidence that probably the effect that we are showing is driven by, by our crowding channel. Okay, let me conclude. Um, so um, throughout history, immigrants have often been blamed for transmitting disease uh, to domestic populations. That was especially also the case um, of the time period that we were looking at during the age of mass migration. However, most of the immigrants at the beginning of the 20th century, 
they really arrived in good health. So we have also some information in the paper that documents that. But it was really this unfavorable living conditions in this very crowded, overcrowded districts that created this link between the urban mortality penalty and immigration, okay? And so what we show you is that despite that the changes in population composition, they might account also for something of this mortality decline. This is like only about, um, this is only about 15% of, uh, of the decline of uh, infectious disease mortality that's coming from uh, population composition, while most of this decline is really coming from this congestion channel. And so like, we think that this has also still some relevance for today because still we have uh, places that are, uh, where substandard housing is very common. And uh, so like there's, this is still like a major public health issue in the US and also worldwide. And so like here I have uh, two, uh, um, pictures, I think, of the, that were um, from, in, from, I think these are from the WPA, um, like posters that kind of uh, provided some campaign on, uh, you know, providing better housing because it uh, would affect uh, the, the living conditions and the, and the mortality rates in the urban slums of the cities. And I think that's it from my side. Uh, th thank you very much indeed, Philip. Um, perhaps you um, could stop um, sharing your slides and then I think yeah. we'll move back into a, yes, a more you. discursive environment. Um, normally and traditionally we would be uh, uh, appreciating that with a rapturous round of applause. Sadly, <laughs> Zoom does not quite allow us to do that, but can I just express, I think, the thanks of all of us for what was a tremendously engaging lecture. Um, thank you. I, I think one of the things I was sitting here thinking is just how important economic history can be for thinking about um, policy and politics today. I mean, the, the, the bottom line here about the economically literate nature of, of nationalist restrictions, of the ways in which costs of migration are borne by different groups, I, I think is, is tremendously important in thinking about the world today, as well as the world of the um, early 20th century. Um, can I invite anyone who has questions, please, to put them into the Q&A. And um, I'm assisted here by Tracy Keith, who's going to feed them to me in some ways. But before, before I, I, I go to that, can I, can I ask you one thing that, that struck me listening to this? Um, and this is in some ways inspired by obviously current events where we see politics changing rapidly and shifting the incentives and the, the nature of migration in Europe now, be it Brexit or the current war in Ukraine. Um, your world is one where you're comparing the 1910s and the 1920s and the world has changed. And I'm wondering yeah. what that does to your to your story. I mean, how obviously at one level it might it might affect your estimates. They might be down, they might be up. Um, you started with Russia in one of your first exemplary illustration. I was thinking, you know, Russia in that second period, it's, it, it's gone through a revolution. Yes. You know, um, what do you think, how do you think that exogenous, that external change in the context of migration that's affecting many of these sending countries, some of which are those countries in Eastern Europe and, and Southern Europe that are profoundly affected by these constraints, what do you think that's doing? Would you imagine that's 
So I'm asking you to speculate wildly in a way that is clearly kind of like obviously the opposite of this incredibly precise, rigorous estimation procedure. But what do you think it would do, right? I mean, do you think there's, there's you know, are these bills left on the sidewalk? Is this, talk to us about that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're obviously right that like, you know, basically in Russia, of course, like, you know, people <laughs> were more, like we're also restricted to, to move after, um like the 19 uh, the 1920s right and so um like one thing what we uh, i mean what what we did not do in the first paper but we did in the second paper is you can also look at the different nationalities individually and you can see that for example like you know um places that had more uh, italians you you kind of uh, see also this uh, uh this effect shining through so like you know it, it's it's it, it's not like only driven by um, the Russians, but of course our approach is silent about that. Why? Because um, we are going to make a prediction how it would have been if the immigration inflow would have continued as it was before World War One. And so, like, of course, there you could. Uh, uh, so, like, if we would have now our, you know, if the Russians would have not been constrained, then probably on that particular uh, nationality um, that might kind of result in a change in the estimate. However, what we can do is we can just uh, look at the different affected nationalities in itself and see how, whether our results change or not. And largely there is no, like, you know, our story holds also for that. So that's- Yeah, I knew you yeah. would have a robust answer, but I think it's really, it's a really interesting question to me. Um, and, I've, got a, I've got a whole queue of questions. So um, I can sure. talk for hours and, myself. And let me, um, you know, let me just, I think, just I I don't yeah so one thing also is I think this type of substitution you know like that for example the agricultural sector responds with like you know investing more into a capital this is not something that we only see in the 1920s for example there's a paper on the um, Bracero program that basically uh, like where Mexican workers were not they they had this specific program where like um, they could come and work for temporary like like you know over a short time period on the fields in the us and basically this program was shut down and you see similar adjustment process so like this gives you another example of a different time period where you also see these adjustments so like you know it's not that the agricultural hands that were already there profit from that but like you know the farmers kind of substitute away from labor and be, produce more capital intensive where they can that's similar to what we find in this period as well so that's just no, no, it's, it's, it's great. Um, let me, I'm going to ask a question now that's come to us from Pete Sorenza. Uh, Pete's one of our alumni, and, and I, I, looking very quickly at the list of attendees, it's great to see so many alumni here today. Um, Pete says, uh, well, he thanks you, um, but he asks, um, what impact do you think these immigration restrictions had on the internal movement of African Americans? Um, out of the, who are moving out of the rural south to the more urban north in your period of study. So how does this affect that kind of great uh, northward migration, I guess? Yes, because I think, yeah, yeah there, there's literature about that, that actually, like the European immigration hold back black migration during this time period. And there's also some uh, other work that has, not by us, but like by uh, another researcher that has uh, looked at that in the 1920s. Uh, in the US using like a different um, um, uh, estimation approach. What we did in the second paper, like on the, on, the, on, the, on the health aspects is 
we tried also to take this into account, like basically by seeing, okay, are these areas that were affected, but like, you know, probably received a lot of black immigrants from, from the US South, are they very different? And we couldn't find any, you know, that our results remain unchanged, even if we accounted for that. So um, in that sense, like, yeah, it, it, so we see that um, African-Americans seem to have benefited from um, the immigration restrictions in the sense that there were also some spillovers to them because their health conditions were maybe not much, even hmm. maybe a little bit worse than the ones of the, uh, the people that were coming from the eastern part of Europe for it at that point in time. And so like, you know, there is some, um, there, there are some spillovers but like it, you know, the, the this migration per se is, you know, does not change our uh, our results. So we try to account for that in uh, in our analysis. And like in the first analysis, we basically look also at the inflow of African Americans. I mean, now I I closed my slides, but um, um, I can uh, look at that. Uh, just give me one second. Um, Sorry for that. So like most of our inflows, for example, in the urban areas is coming from native born whites actually. So uh, like in the more affected areas, we see also some inflows of um, what we call native born non-whites, but statistically we don't see any, any effect. So like there's something going on, but like, you know, we cannot really detect that uh, as a, you know, that this has some substantial impact there. So that like most of us is coming in the, I mean, the replacement that I have explained in the in the urban areas that's coming from internal migrants are actually um, white uh, native born workers. It's very interesting. So some kind of segregation in some sense in the labor market persisting there. It could be, yeah. Um, let me let me ask a, a question that's come from um, Larry Sung from Sean, um, and I've also noticed that Rita Astuti, uh, another professor in the LSE, who was uh, Larry's wife, um, was is was also attending. Um, so Sean asks, um, uh, thanks for the talk. Um, it's possible that the shift from labour intensive to capital intensive farming, um, and the internal migration to urban areas was unrelated to immigration controls, but or was it rather caused by technological advances or other post-World War and World War I effects? Um, and if that's the case, then the labor market movements um, and the wage stagnation may have been limited by immigration controls by restricting the labor stock rather than being caused by it. So I think I may have slightly mangled that, but it's really kind of asking about how much technology um, might be explaining the phenomenon you're seeing, particularly in agriculture. So, so there is actually another paper, like not <laughs> by us, that looks at um, that looks at actually the consequence of um, uh, this immigration restrictions on, like you know, whether like um, affected places become more capital intensive. Like looking at the tractors. I mean, as I said in our analysis, we didn't. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't do that in a way because we don't have tractors in the uh, like information on tractors before World War uh, before World War One. But like in some sense, so what our argument always is, it's like, and I think I emphasize that is it's a relative comparison. So like say, of course there could be um, technological uh, progress, like, you know, these places, they become more capital intensive in general. I mean, our argument is that this type of substitution towards more capital intensive production is more in these more affected areas. So like, you know, we take in like, you know, so basically a general, 
um, trend in in like reliance more in tractors, our analysis can capture. But like you know, we are still saying okay, basically even if we take this into account in this more in this more affected areas, so basically where places where they received less immigrant labor in uh, in the in in this uh, rural labor markets, we see that there is this shift towards more capital intensive. Uh, crop production and we have some indication that also the tractor intensity is also going up there but these effects are that's like more speculative in that sense so like you know that i hope that explains or like answers this, this I, I think it does so even more tractors um yes <laughs> um but i kind of build on this actually we have a question from alex green who's one of our current phd students yeah um he says, I'm particularly interested in your findings on the capitalization of agriculture. Um, in his research, and Alex works on grain markets, um, he, I find that this period coincides with growing year-on-year uh, -year surpluses of wheat, which actually lead to significant declines in price. So one of the mysteries um, is with this period of significant price decline, why farmers actually continue to produce wheat in bulk? And he asks, do you think that this capitalization narrative could actually be contributing to this effect uh, because farmers have incurred the sunk cost of capitalization and they don't have the labor to diversify away from these types of crops. So it's kind of lock-in type account maybe coming out. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in some sense, like at least what you see is that even in these places that probably become more capital intensive, like, you know, which are probably our areas, you don't see that these farmers actually lose out more than in the less affected areas. However, again, as I'm saying, this is a relative comparison, right? Like, so this could, it could happen that actually during this time period, the profits in general declined, but it, they don't decline differentially more in the, in the more affected areas. Mm. You okay. see? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do see. I, mean, I think it would, be, it would be an interesting thing to explore further, I think. Perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like one of the, I think the shortages of our approach is that you can make relative statements, but like, you know, to see like what's going on, like, you know, like saying the aggregate, you would need to have some more structure to that. Like, you know, so basically we can only, I mean, like our, our approach is, is valid using this relative type of comparisons, right? So I think that's important to... Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask now a question from Anthony Valion, who is um, not as far as I'm aware in the department right now, but I may be wrong, um, which actually raises kind of like br brings us to a broader question, which I think actually has a very contemporary parallel parallels. He's asking with the xenophobia against Southern and Eastern Europeans you mentioned as being such an influence in the 1921 and 24 <laughs> quota laws, was there much of a counter debate? about the quotas and pressures to allow more immigrants, particularly Jewish and Roma, after the pogroms against the Jews in the 20s and the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s. So to what extent is there a, a, you know, a, a reaction within US immigration debate, immigration policy to that very kind of um, striking shift in, in Europe? I, I mean, like, actually, like, there is, um, so there is, one paper that comes to my mind that actually still discusses that like about immigrate you know like basically how the immigration law changed after world war ii and so like what's interesting there is that basically this type of racial inferiority arguments that have been made in the 20s still carried over 
like you know into this time period so like there's some debate so there's um um a paper it's uh, it's i think it's by markel and stern that kind of you know talk about this uh this type of sentiments against immigrants and like you know their kind of threats to public health that, that this is not something that basically goes away but like you know it seems to be like ingrained in the thinking of like you know not only like you know of politicians and uh and and like you know certain group of the society in general so like you know you 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 see that these arguments have been still in place and i, I mean i would need to look up the the quote but like i um um i was quite, I mean, I was quite shocked that you see, I mean, even like, you know, after what all happened in Germany with, you know, like the programs and all, all these uh, bad things that happened, that still like in the 1950s, you had like people talking about immigration restrictions came up with this type of arguments um, again, right? And so I think that's, uh, so this tells you something about that this type of sentiments are very, it's something very persistent, um, yeah. And a somewhat depressing story as well. I would say so. Yes. Um, let me let me um, turn to a question um, from one of our current faculty, Eric Schneider, who I think you know. Um, um, Eric um, wants to ask about this the mortality. We haven't talked about much about that, and I, I think yes. it's, it's only fair to ask you some questions on that, that yes. second half of the paper. Yeah. Um, Eric asks: um, Is the immigrant effect on mortality because cities grew more slowly? And so we're able to build out better infrastructure and so on. Or was it because internal migrants were richer than foreign migrants and therefore could afford to live in higher quality housing? So, I, I mean, in our, our story is, is more about, yeah, so that basically suddenly you have fewer, I mean, like most of the immigrants, they were like living at that point in time, like really in the centers of the cities. And they're actually, we see also some, um, some population decline. So, um, and um, I mean, it's I, at that point in time, what did not happen is there were not like large scale public housing programs for, for example, like during the 1920s, like where like, you know, our effects start to, uh, to kick in. So um, in that sense, I, uh, I would say that um, since we also find these spillovers on African-Americans, which probably are the ones that have maybe in some of them moved into these areas where before some of the, the immigrants lived, um, you know, like there is an effect not only on like maybe potentially like richer white US borns, but like, you know, also on the poorer segment of this. So why this is exactly the, I mean, like, you know, what has changed in the city structure in itself, unfortunately, this we cannot really observe. The only thing what we can observe is that like, apparently there is less pressure on the housing supply because we see this decline in the numbers of borders and lodgers and like you know these are really like these people that live some poor families they had to rent out um a part of their apartment to someone else and like you know like having all these people crowded together was like really uh you know something where infectious diseases could spread easily i think this is like when you read some of this uh contemporaneous uh, uh, reports of uh, of like some um, yeah like like this Jakob Ries um, I think this is really something that um, that is driving these results that basically the immigration basically that they were not in these places they were not coming so much 
reduced a little bit pressure on the housing on the housing stock. But like, of course, what does this tell us for the for, for the future is like it would be, I mean, that basically better housing, it would be an essential way of like, you know, improving um, generally the health condition of people that live in this very densely populated areas. And so I think that's like maybe something that one can take out of uh, this last result of, of the paper that I just showed you. Yeah. No, I, I think that's important. And, and Eric actually anticipated a bit of that because one of the things he, he, he went on to ask was about whether or not future migrants would actually mo be moving to the same places as pre-war migrants. And so in that sense, you start to get all of these complexities about how commuting distances and city, pat city spatial patterns might be changing. Um, yes. Things to think about perhaps. But let me, let me turn to a different question, um, which I think asks um, us to kind of broaden slightly the kind of scope of the conversation. Um, and this is from uh, Colin Lewis, who is um, one of the emeritus professors in the department. Um, another former head of department. Um, and um, Colin asks really a methodological question. Um, so how transferable do you think your approach is to other economies that also experience large or mass immigration and also imposed restrictions on the flow of immigrants? For example, Australia or, the, or Argentina? Um, so, um, I think like, I mean, this approach basically is, yeah, so suited in, a, in, in, in that sense, like, you know, you have some policy shock that happened more in an aggregated level, and then basically you try to exploit how this affects different, um, you know, local, I mean, like you can think about either municipalities or counties or like, you know, the state economic areas. So I think that this approach in general is transferable to other uh, to other countries. Let me give you one example. Um, in the trade literature, people have looked at like trade liberalization and how this affects uh, certain local markets using a similar approach. I mean, of course, ours is tailored towards immigration, but like I think that's like one way of getting at you know like how uh, a change in a in a in a you know in a federal policy can have an impact on local areas like the cities or the state economic areas. So I think that's not restricted only to the, like, you know, to our specific setup, but I think like, you know, with this sort of data, if you have something similar for the UK or for Australia or for Denmark, for example, you could use a similar approach there. I, I hope that that, you know. I think it does. I think it, it suggests some of the possibilities of, of the kind of work you're doing. Obviously, as long as the data exists, right? Yes, uh, no, exactly. Or, Always a question, but can I can I maybe build on this a little bit because there's a question that I've been wanting to ask for a while. It's by um, Amit Newfold, um, which is really not about so much about the method, but about what one would anticipate of the findings if one applied this method to a different kind of economy. And Amit asks, I mean, say we take Germany, um, which experiences a large flow of Turkish migrants in the 50s and 60s, or France with the North African migration in the same period. I mean, you're studying in North America, in the United States, an economy with very different kind of distribution of population mm -hmm. compared to Germany or France in that period. Do you think that the kind of effects would be similar or, or do you anticipate that they might, might be a little bit different? Um, in how um, it comes out? I mean, I think like, you know, if you look at places that have industrialized also very rapidly, so like, you know, Again, like I, I, I think like, you know, maybe if you have a, a sim, you know, you would have a similar shock, like say within 
England for like the that like in terms of density and mortality, I think you probably would get my my I could imagine that you get a, a similar response, right? Because um, I mean, in, in the end, like our our paper combines like you know the effect of immigration and crowding on mortality, and so like you know in the end, like if you have um, like crowded cities where like people were working and living to, together like in, in very this overcrowded areas. I think you know, like I expect similar results. I mean, for the labor market results, of course, um, maybe the U I mean, of course, the U.S. There is also something context specific to uh, uh, to it, and like you know, maybe this extreme mobility that you had in the in the U.S. Uh, in other countries, you might not uh, see this probably like in, on on that extent. But like, let, let me give. I mean, the the paper that I referred to on the Mexican uh, Bracero program. You could also think about similar effects um, for Turkish migrants, for example. Like, depend. I mean, of course, as you saw in this in this presentation, like the adjustment depends on the sector. So, like, it also also depends on like you know in which sectors the people were uh, working in, right? You know, whether they were like working mainly in manufacturing or like in agriculture. These responses might be different, but I think some of this the substitutability of immigrants. I think this is maybe something also that I mean current literature has also found that. So I think some of it also translates over, but of course, we, I mean, you know, we need to be aware that the stuff that we are studying is of course, like you cannot compare everything that happened in the 1920s with today. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's clear. I mean, remember we, I mean, we have, for example, not, we don't have really wage data, right? So, I mean, like, you know, we need to make some uh, assumptions there. So like some of the, I mean, some, maybe some of the results might be different, but I think, yeah. Mortality, I think that's like something in, like, you know, if you if you have other um, very crowded cities, I would say you get probably similar results if because often like in these places, immigrants are living in, right? And um, and so like, you know, I can think that there is some, you know, like yeah, there is some external validity there with the, with the labor market effects. I mean, that depends, I think. It's also a bit more case specific. As someone who's more at home in the 1620s and the 1920s, I'm, I'm glad you're embracing different different impacts there. Um, I completely agree. Um, can I ask one final question, I think, from uh, um, Amelia Larachea Formas. I'm murdering her name, I'm sure. She's a, a, Barcelona, a PhD candidate in law at the University, University of Barcelona. Um, and she, I, I, I want to bring this in just because it, it, it it's a question that I think will go through people's minds when they hear about immigration and using statistics generated by the state. And that really is like, how do you deal with illegal migration, um, essentially black market labor in here? Are you confident that this is not so much of an issue for what you're working on? Um, maybe I think it's something important to uh, discuss given the, given the kind of importance that we give to that. In, in I, I, I think actually the, the, at least in the US, I think the issue about um, like, you know, illegal uh, immigration, I think that was less of an issue at the time period when we were looking at than like, you know, it is as of today. So like, you know, I think some of the, the problems, um, you know, like data related problems that you might have um, of measuring these impacts of today, I think that's less of an issue in, uh, in our time period, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we've we've come towards the end of our, our time, and um, uh, we've asked Philip a number of uh, a number of uh, difficult questions, challenging questions. After what I thought was um, a wonderful talk, um, full of of rich um, ideas, um, incredible um, 
agility of, of mind and research design, all of the things that we would hope for um, from an Epstein lecturer. So Philip, it stands for me to really express once again our gratitude for joining us um, and to say we hope that we can welcome you in person at some point. Yeah, thank um, you. To, to offer you a, a dinner at least to say thank you for this. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, thank so you. thank you everyone for attending us. Um, uh, it's been a great pleasure to see so many alumni, so many um, uh, friends of the department among those in the audience here today. And we hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to this Epstein lecture. Thank you once again and good night. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.